there's a cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a code of silence and it can't go on. Hi, I am Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on October the 31st, 2008. I always encourage the newcomers to look into my website at cuttingthroughthematrix.com and download as many of the previous talks I've given on the big matrix, the big reality you've been given, as you possibly can handle. And also look into alanwattsentinsentinel.eu for transcripts which you can download and print up, written in various languages of Europe. We are on the roller coaster. We are the, we are the cannon fodder for the generation, the cannon fodder that Rockefeller and others have called us in meetings gone by, the generations which are going through the big change, the plan change, change which literally was planned long before any of us were born. We find this with the writings of the big players of the past who helped set in motion and helped the big think tanks organize into reality the foundations for uh, this massive change. And that's why the slogan is all around you, change is good. And all those cheering fools that uh, have their banners about change never ask what they mean by it. Define change. Tell us what change you're talking about. And we've had this in democracy forever, this vote the last bunch out and vote someone else in because we get so fed up of the corruption in the last bunch. We vote them out. That's what democracy really is about. Not voting in the new because we like them, but it's so sick of the old boys. And so on the game goes because the left and the right wings are just two wings attached to the same body of the same bird or phoenix as in reality it actually is. But change, 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 as they keep talking about, is what it's all about. And what's changing? Well, we're changing into a planned, controlled society. That's been underway for a long time now. And governments have never, ever catered to the public. They've always pandered to special interest groups and lobbyists. Most people think of the lobbyists as being the big international corporations, and that is true. That is one segment of it. However, there's another part of it, and that's the big foundations with their thousands of non-governmental organizations that demand change, not haphazard change, but planned change. And you'll find, really, when you look into them, they're all coordinated by the same handful of foundations, thousands and thousands of lobby groups managed by foundations and think tanks. We are brought up to believe we stumble down through time haphazardly like a drunken man through a field and eventually over time we, we learn where the, the potholes are and where the log down uh, in the field is to jump over and all that kind of stuff. In other words, we, we, we get obstacles in our way and we find ways around them. That's what we're taught from childhood onwards. But nothing is further from the truth because societies are planned and even the big conflicts in your day that you live through are planned as well. 
the changes we're going through now, as I say, is into the planned society. You cannot read old books by masters of fiction and non-fiction like Huxley, Aldo Huxley and Brave New World without realizing that someone who knew about genetic engineering in the 1930s and who could write a book about it, very entertaining book, talking about the, the creatures that would serve the elite in the future where we almost are today. You can't look at those books without realizing this man had insight information, and that's the key to everything. He was one of the elite helpers at that level. We're back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt. And before the break I was discussing how everything is planned long before we're born. And that is how those who rule and have power, the dominant minority, as Huxley called them, don't lose power. They are intergenerational planners and they pull it off, making sure their own children take over and grow up in their footprints, so to speak, with the reins of power still in their hands intact. But the public themselves never know this, and they're taught not to believe in it. They're taught to believe that politicians make all the big choices and plans and get around the obstacle courses and get us across that field by their debating and their arguments, and nothing is further from the truth. Bureaucracies since the League of Nations have bypassed politicians with their head departments as they coordinate each other and with each other through the United Nations and before that League of Nations. They don't need to go through the bureau, the politicians anymore. And that was written about by H.G. Wells at the foundation of the League of Nations. Now, we don't vote bureaucracies into power. In fact, they're very secretive. We don't know really what they're really up to or what their particular part in the agenda is. We just throw mud at the politicians, and that's what the politicians are really there for. They receive the mud. That's how the world is really run. It's by deception. Because you don't want the public to know that they're already under a form of totalitarianism, even though today it's right in their face. They can't escape from it. If they have the memory of the last few years, definitely from 9-11 onwards, at least they'll see that we're going into a completely totalitarian type of future. Huxley talked about this in his lectures. He, he thought that we could go into a brave new world scenario gradually and that we'd come to love our servitude, as he called it. But he, he poo-pooed the idea that they'd even need an Orwellian phase where Big Brother comes down on you with the boot in the face forever. He didn't see that so much happening, but what we've, what we've actually lived through is both of them happening simultaneously. They're using the military, they're using the police powers, they're using all of the agencies they have to control the public and get us to, to be obedient. That's the key to it. All these irrational laws that are thrown upon us are to get us to cow, cow us down, to make us more obedient so we'll accept the next part and the next part and the next part. Humiliation, as Pavlov found out with these experiments, not only on animals but on humans, humiliation is essential for humans to accept totalitarian rule. 
when you feel weak and insignificant, you tend to rush along with every new law that's thrust upon you without question. At first, you can be indignant. They must get you over the indignancy phase. I try to get you back into indignancy, because if we lose that altogether, it's game over. And it's so easy to read every day in the newspapers about children's aid societies coming down with SWAT teams that want people. Or over the last few days, 29 police cars and a helicopter called to domestic dispute in England would end up shooting a guy. We see these things daily now, the, over, the massive overreactions of authorities to, to situations which were dealt with at one time with a couple of cops. And this is to cow the public into keeping low. Keep your head down, you don't look authority in the eye, and you say, yes, Massa, yes, Massa, yes, Massa. We should all learn to repeat that over and over and over so we don't get beaten on the heads by the thugs, which they now employ. And we see them everywhere. Cops everywhere now have shaven heads. It doesn't matter if it's Canada, the U.S., or anywhere else in the world, shaven heads. And with the flat jackets on and all the rest of it, and the steroids are on, they look just like the cartoon figures that they've grown up playing with, with their video games. They are now the cartoon characters, only they're carrying the real weaponry. It's tragic what's happened, tragic what's happened. But it was all done by, by design. Nothing happens by itself. Part of the big change we're going through is the economic changeover between the old system, and this might be you know, fairly gradual to start with until to, to get into the next step of the system. But John Maynard Keynes, and I read this from last Wednesday, I think it was, talked about bringing in a new system that is not based on selfishness. Because remember, going back to the writings of Cecil Rhodes, which became with the Lord Milner Group, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, they talked about bringing in a world of servitude. Servitude, where you were born with a function to serve the world state. And Maynard Keynes talked about this too, where the, the whole prospect of working for yourself and accumulation would be out the window. But of course he didn't say anything about the upper class. But he was classed as a socialist himself. And people don't realize that if they go into the writings of the top socialists and even the founders of the Fabian Society, these elitists were not there for the working people. In fact, they were heavily funded by multi-millionaires like the Astor family. But to lead the working people into this world, so we would accept sterilization, being of the lower orders of things, and we would accept uh, the rights and privileges of being matched up to breed with better genes and so on, or else you wouldn't breed at all. That's what they were all about. That was the real socialism of the day. It's amazing how many things came out of Blavatsky's theosophy and blended into eventually Marxism and Nazism or fascism. They all came from the same root, uh, a theory of the world based on servitude to a world state, a world order. And everyone acts as the whole, as 
no individual allowed. And that's what we see today. Individuality is utterly, utterly taboo. The United, State, the United Nations has openly declared that the causes of all previous wars, lying as always, uh, were due to the individual. And therefore, they'd have to eradicate it. And that's why children in school for years now have had groupthink where they all have to go along with the popular opinion that's basically intimated to them by the teacher. If you don't go along, you're ostracized. They used to use this technique, you see. In religious groups, they would shun someone who had a, an idea that was heretic or profane. They'd shun them until they begged to get back in. These people love to belong to the group, especially youngsters. That's what the entertainment industry knows, who run the entertainment know, is that youngsters want to belong to a group. So they give you the different groups. They give you the trendy fashion ones. They give you the, the bad boy ones. And they give you the, the clothing and everything to go with it. That's all part of culture creation, where the fashion industry works with all, all the other arts. Something they've always understood. And it was amazing, too, back in the days of Mao Zedong in China, when they were going through their cultural revolution, and everyone in China wore these blue sort of overalls, and it just happened to, make, to be in the West. They brought out the blue jeans. Somebody wore blue denim. And, it's, of course, it's all associated with the Blue Lodge, although most folk don't know that. We're always being made a, a laughing stock of as we adopt whatever is given to us. And we want to belong to a particular group with the baggy pants and so on, which was not designed by some guy in, a, in a, uh, the east end of some city. The east end being of every city is that the smoke would blow from the rich places over across the east end, not the other way around. That's why it's always an east end of a city. But they gave them baggy pants and so on, the bad boy look, and promoted that through music. So whatever your particular mentality is, they have a group already made for you, even when you're your youngster. It's all catered for before you're born. I'm sure the fashions for the next, in the next 20 years are already created now, and they'll unfold them step by step, year by year, as we go along. Same with the music, if we call it that, if we call it music at all. But this money... Thing. Everything revolves around economics, as John Stuart uh, Mill talked about. Mill was an interesting guy. He worked for, again, the, the British system. His son took over the same name and the same line of duty. And they both talked about the different races that would be allowed to live through into the new age. And the first writings, I think, were in the 1700s. They even had lists of the, the, the people who would never adapt to the white man's way of life. American Indians were part of that. They said that they would never get into a routine of working 12 hours a day or whatever it happens to be. And therefore, they'd have to perish. Again, uh, all in line with Darwinism, even before Darwin came along to sort of make it official for them. Because really, it's an old religion. It's pre-Darwin. Darwin was just a spokesman to bring it out into the open. And they had the, the African as well. And out of that came the whole eugenics movement. And from it all, 
we find, as I say, Nazism, fascism, and communism, or the Soviet system, came out of the same roots based on materialism and man's purpose and the great scheme of things to do with economics. Bretton Woods was set up during World War II to deal with the massive debt that was being incurred. And remember, World War II pulled the Western countries out of the Great Depression. Suddenly they had lots of money they could borrow and the bankers were willing to give them for war. Never fails. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix. We're trying to show people how the world is directed by big think tanks, big lobby groups, all working together, and I've no doubt for a single head at the top. Generations are pulled through, crisis after crisis in this great crisis creation system, and out of each crisis, you have a a new synthesis, basically, that, that comes out. That's really what they're after. They're training us step by step through a thousand different ways, even through cartoons for children, that the world can't sustain so many people. They've been at this for a long time, centuries, in fact, the same battle cry, but they have to cull down the people. They don't like people very much at the top, but it's a, a necessary evil. We've got to polish their shoes and make things for them, but we don't make so many things nowadays, therefore a surplus. China makes most of the stuff that's needed for their survival. So what they do with excess stock, they want to cull them, bring them down. How would you do it at the end? You can use all the, the means possible, but mainly economics. The greatest way to get scarcity is warfare. Therefore, you have a war on terror worldwide, and it'll go on for as long as they wish it to go on, until the whole world now is standardized and under one system, and then you'll find the battle cry will continue all through all of this of bringing down the population. The, the economic system can't sustain it, the world can't sustain it, and so on and so on and so on. Even though the statistics show that the birth rate in the Western world has been plummeting for years. doesn't change the fact, you see. Facts don't matter to them so much. It's propaganda that matters. They discover facts all the time. David Suzuki one of the great champions for all of this, and backed by the big foundations, openly said on CBC Radio they have to kill thousands per day to save the world. That was a couple of years ago. He stated we're losing, I can't remember how many thousand species per day, for years. For about 30 years he said this. And, and if he was right, there'd be nothing left on the planet today, not even an amoeba. Well, that isn't so. But it doesn't stop him prattling off the same stuff. And he's well paid to do it, of course. Perception overcomes reality with propaganda. That's his point and the purpose. Here's an article from IPS News on Thursday, October the 30th. It says, Brussels, October 28th. Europe, by the way of hyperactive French President Nicolas Sarkozy, demands a Bretton Woods II 
that is a major shake-up of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. This is as much a rescue operation for two organizations that have lost muscle as a call for a new financial architecture. Now, that's not true. The World Bank and the IMF have been working with various countries, including Britain, during Thatcher's reign to pull them out of the hole. But really, they've been sitting in the sidelines for a while because they've been waiting for now to bring them up to full power and authority. That's why they set them up. Says up until mid-October 2008, the IMF, the world's most important financial institution, did not play a role in the unfolding credit crisis. The G7, the seven industrialized nations, United States, Canada, France, Britain, Germany, Italy, and Japan, had given the task to make recommendations to the Financial Stability Forum, dominated by the G7 countries, effectively bypassing the fund. Also, the IMF proved powerless in prevention of the crisis. For years, the fund deplored the rising macroeconomic imbalance between China and the U.S., which lies at the heart of the current crisis. The IMF had to do this because Article 1 of its charter says one of the purposes of the IMF is to shorten the duration and lessen the degree of disequilibrium in the international balances of payments of members. But the fund, the fund simply has no real power over countries such as the U.S. or China. Then it goes on and on and on with the usual kind of news, but in the same newspaper, October the 30th, it says here, Washington, October 29th. Although this part was written October the 30th, it says two weeks before U.S. President George Bush hosts an economic summit to address the six-weeks-old financial crisis that's wreaked havoc on the world's capital and stock markets, a coalition of nearly 600 non-governmental organizations, NGOs, from 88 countries is calling for a fundamental and far-reaching transformation on the international financial and economic system. So here you go again. Here's another side of the story with this big meeting and calling for a new system of Bretton Woods too. Here's, now, is anybody that you know, does anyone that you know actually go to these meetings? No. Well, here's 600 non-governmental organizations from 88 countries going to it. Do you have any input in any of this, what they'll come out with? No. Do you believe in democracy? Well, what's this then? A closed shop that NGOs. See, this is a new Soviet system I've been talking about for a while. That is what Soviet means, ruled by councils, NGOs. But just like the Soviet Union, the people didn't manage the NGOs or pick their leaders. They were picked by the Politburo. In the Western world, it's the big foundations who put their men and women forward to lead these organizations. It says in a statement released Wednesday, the groups demanded that the upcoming group of 20 meeting November 15th here to the, uh, to the way for a much broader and more inclusive reform effort in which all of the world's governments and international civil societies should participate. Oh, really? Give me a ticket. And I'll be back with more about this after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watts. 
discussing an article from the IPS News to do with the big meeting of the group of seven or eight or a hundred or whatever the heck it happens to be now, because they keep changing the figure for different purposes. They have different groups, but it's all really the same people, backed with the same NGOs, working on behalf of all of us, apparently, even though we don't vote the NGOs in. And that's a new kind of democracy. That's what they mean by democracy. That's what they mean when you hear democracy. We must bring democracy to the world. They're talking about the Sovietized system. And it says here, it is of course imperative to agree on immediate measures to address the crisis, and we emphasize that priority must be given to responses to the impacts on ordinary employees and workers, low-income households, pensioners, and other extremely vulnerable sectors. According to the statement that was signed by Friends of the Earth, look into Friends of the Earth. Because this does not sound like their usual spiel. It's also signed by Action Aid and Social Watch, amongst other international groups. Do you vote for any of these people? Do you know anything about them? Because these people now, apparently, are representing you. Since we're deeply concerned about the proposed meetings will be carried out in a rushed and non-inclusive manner, and as a result, not address the comprehensive range of changes needed, nor fairly allocate their burden, it's said. The groups which also included Civicus, the European Network on Debt and Development, called Eurodad, that's rather sexist, and Jubilee, Jubilee, of course, is from the biblical Jubilee, where you forgave the debt after about 50 years or something. They cried what they called a double standard by which wealthy Western governments in dealing with the crisis were currently engaged in the kind of government intervention that Western-dominated institutions like the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund had forbidden their poor country borrowers. This is amazing, this, this scam that's going on with the poor countries, because the big bankers love lending money to the first world countries who then lend it out to the poor, because they know the poor can't pay them. And they know that through the World Bank, they'll write it off. However, the richer countries like Canada, the States, and Britain, and so on, are written down as the guarantors, so we end up paying these debts off. So they write them off, and we pay off the actual loans, and then our governments go and give them another loan. It's a, it's a banker's scam, you see. Banker's scam. Since the double standard is not only unacceptable, but it also signals demise of free market fundamentalism, the statement said. When has there ever been free market fundamentalism? International financial system, its architecture, and its institutions must be completely rethought. See, they're talking about bringing the whole new, the second part of the Bretton Woods Agreement, the one that Maynard Keynes talked about. The international financial system, its architecture, and its institutions must be completely rethought. The statement comes on the eve of the first meeting of a UN task force set up by the President of the General Assembly, Miguel Escoto, and chairs by, chaired by Economics Nobel Laureate and former World Bank Chief Economist Joseph Stiglitz to make recommendations about how to cope with the ongoing crisis. So, it's amazing to realize that everything that really matters in our lives, if we allow the system to continue the way it is, is out of our control. Every crisis that's brought upon us is outside of our control, the individual's control. 
And we're taught this over and over again. Leave it to the experts. Leave it to the experts. You don't know enough. Leave it to the experts. The world that Bertrand Russell kept talking about bringing in, it's happened. And in reality, people are never in reality. They don't know what's really going on. They've been taught to simply play and be entertained and leave the big problems to their betters. And God help us all when our betters are 100% are 100 in charge of us. It's literally game over for all of us. This article here also falls in line with what I'm talking about because I talked before about how you must learn to forgo your indignation to be subservient to the elite and how Huxley talked about the Brave New World scenario hopefully coming in step by step until the public would sort of glide into it generation by generation with the acceptance of new technologies and pharmaceuticals and so on and genetic engineering and out of it would sort of just come this Brave New World scenario. He didn't foresee or didn't think it was possible, although he didn't discount it, that Big Brother would use the boot and the club on the public. However, we're getting both methods used at the moment. As we go through into the Brave New World, we have to go through the big boot on the face, on the, on the human face, stamping on the human face. That's why they're using terrorism and massive police forces, which are just paramilitary organizations. They're armed to the teeth and itching to go. This is from the Mail Online. It says here, police to get mobile fingerprint scanners amid plans to hold random identity checks. 27th of October, 2008, by Matthew Drake. Police forces will be issued mobile fingerprint scanners amid plans to carry out random identity checks on police in the street, or people in the street. Now, this is in Britain, but you see, I'm, I'm speaking from a Commonwealth country that was up until recently called a Dominion of Canada, basically owned by the Queen, and it still is. Everything is crown land. And that goes for Australia, New Zealand, and other countries as well under the Commonwealth idea, the Commonwealth being set up, remember, to be the nucleus and the base to build a global society. That's what the United Nations has stated too. So everything that happens in Britain that leads the, at the forefront of the socialized system happens very quickly in other countries too, even those outside the Commonwealth countries. Whatever happens in Britain happens in the States very quickly thereafter so they're going, to, they're going to issue the police forces with mobile fingerprint scanners it says the new handheld devices will enable every officer on, on the ground to receive see they're on the ground they're even used military terminology officers on the ground to receive instant images of suspects as part of a scheme codenamed project Midas there's a lot of gold a lot of money be made there in high technology and totalitarianism no bigger than a BlackBerry smartphone, the technology will be widely distributed to every force in the UK within 18 months. Now, that means this was planned years ago. <laughs> when they bring in something in 18 months to come, that means this was already up and planned and debated and organized years ago. Senior police chiefs claim the operation will rapidly improve police reaction times and hasten the speed of criminal investigations. 
It's amazing. Britain has the most cameras, I think, of any country in the world per capita. And yet it hasn't helped in crime at all. Because it's not the purpose of it is to help stop crime. Crime is necessary for them to have a totalitarian system, at least the excuse for it. Since the critics warn the device is yet another step towards a sinister big brother state controlled by mass surveillance and random checks on innocent citizens. Each photograph is enhanced using facial mapping techniques which, when combined with computerized facial recognition, could allow CCTV cameras to trigger an alert when they film a known criminal. The planned facial images national database project will allow every force to to access the photographs for the first time. So here it's working in concert as they knew it it would 20 years ago and long, long before they put cameras in. They had all this mapped out step by step where they'd bring it to. So, see, they've already got these, these, um, these CCTV cameras, not just going to people in your local area. They're already in a centralized system in the nation for the whole nation. They're all connected together. That was in the movie Enemy of the State. It's the same in the U.S. It's already set up. They're being watched wherever you go, instantly, as soon as you walk in a store or onto a street. Your your photograph is digitalized, and up comes your name on somebody's computer. So fingerprints and facial recognition now are going together. In a bid to address fears, police insist fingerprints captured on the scanners will not be stored or added to any databases, but they've been lying to us for years. That's what you get with the cops. Have you ever noticed how they wear the, the little chessboard around their hats in Britain. Have you ever wondered why? The black and white squares, the dark side, the light side. All Masonic, all Masonic, amazing. Just Liberty, the civil rights group, is concerned about the introduction of scanners quoting the law, which requires any print taken in such circumstances to be deleted immediately after use. Ha, ha, ha. Gareth Crossman, Liberty's policy director, said... Saving time with new technology could help police performance. (laughs) But officers must be absolutely certain that they take fingerprints only when they suspect an individual of an offence and can't establish his identity. Really? Really? The Home Office is understood to have already allocated, listen to this, £50 million, that's $100 million, for 10,000 of the mobile devices by September. Great business for their boys, eh? Great loots, great lolly, as they say. A prototype machine has already been trialed during a series of tests carried out by motorway patrols. Details of the equipment and the proposed scope of use emerged from a presentation by the National Policing Improvement Agency. Oh, God. A preliminary phase of Midas has already set the taxpayer back £30 million to £40 million. So that, that was already done. So he's in there £50 million on top of it but is expected to cut the performance time for the fingerprint of suspects arrested or detained and free up to officers for other duties, free up officers for other duties. A present officer has to take suspects to custody suites if they need to check their fingerprints. On average, the procedure is reported to take 67 minutes, with many taking far longer. So uh, there you go. You know, again, there's no indignation from the public. Until it's their turn to be to be harassed by one of these many agencies 
and groups and so on. And they all started as services, police service, from the peelers, they called it, the peelers. Peel, like John Peel, was the first guy to set up a policing system for the rich areas of London, England, because there was so much poverty during the Industrial Era, Industrial Revolution. So they called them the peelers, and then they called them coppers, because they wore a copper badge on their helmet. And they're still called services, even though they harass and harass and harass. And they're buying more equipment, pretty well, than the military is buying now. Why? Why? Everything leads to a question, and people don't ask the right questions. They don't, they don't ask too much at all, actually. And I'm going to go to the, the phones now and see who I've got. But Fred from SD, SD. Hello. Hello, Fred. Hi, Alan. How are you? I'm hanging in here. It's about the rest of what the dresses are doing. Yes. You know, earlier you were talking about the um, Fabian Society. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't really think that a lot of people out there understand the influence that the Fabian Society has mm-hmm. on all the governments in all the countries. Yeah. And yeah. I think another thing that a lot of people don't really understand a lot of is that um, the Hegelian dialectic mm-hmm. that's being used to what, mind control our, uh, our social structure and political structure and such. Yeah. And if you could... It, it, Maybe you might be able to talk a little bit on that. And mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I could do, but uh, I know the Fabian Society, uh, as I say, uh, Wells wrote about it, H.G. Wells, who was one of the founders of it. Mm-hmm. And he did mention that when the Astors were sent over from, from the States to help run and finance it, uh, that they could, and Lady Astor said to him, we can't fail now. We can't fail. Now, money was merged with an agenda, you see. And this agenda was on behalf of the elite who foresaw the need to start bringing down the population drastically because they knew that, that uh, they were going to have a post-industrial era and they didn't want all the people around that they had built up for their wars, etc., and the Industrial Revolution. They wouldn't need them anymore. But this was for a planned society that they wanted to bring in and they did want to cull off those with what they called inferior genes. These are the guys who were into eugenics on a massive scale. And even today, the top labor candidates in Britain are often members of the Fabian Society. They still put out, I think, uh, a magazine uh, with, with their agendas, etc. Mm-hmm. But they're the most radical of all, and it's not for the working people. Uh, see, the elite at one time looked around, and especially the upper middle classes looked around, the big industrial cities of, of Europe, and they were offended by the, 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 the terrible poverty of the working class. It offended their eyes, literally. It Wells himself, who was the, the son of a servant in one of the elite families, Holmes, he was brought up there, uh, became terrified of the working class because one day, I mean, his mother was only one step away from joining them. So he had a neurotic reaction and ended up hating and despising, being fearful of the working class. Mm. Therefore, he was a perfect candidate to be hired by those elites whose idea and solution was to start eradicating uh, those with lesser genes and the poor. They called it the poverty gene. So they set up the Fabian Society 
And you'll find um, Sidney and Beatrice Webb, who were the, helped the co-founders of the society. I mean, Sidney was a complete bureaucrat who brought the language of bureaucraties into existence with his resolutions and his sub-paragraphs and, and so on and so on and so on. So this is how it's run. That was the prototype for the rest of the world to follow and all the big NGOs to follow and all the big foundations to follow. That was the first main one, and it's still at the head of a lot of them today. Yeah. And they do use the uh, Hegelian dialectic. Oh, yes. Also, right? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Um, I mean, the, the very fact to take on a working guise is, is, is uh, part of the Hegelian dialectic. And, uh, I mean, if you look at even the, 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 the supposed people who've been labor um, representatives who become prime ministers in the last few years, they've been more conservative than any conservatives have had. And the public can never get it through their heads uh, that, that they're all working for the same agenda. It, it is the same agenda. The party system is a joke to fool the people. I mean, Tony Blair was supposedly a labor representing big labor. You know? mm -hmm. And he was the most uh, fanatical warmonger we've ever seen for a long, long time. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't think a lot of people understand that uh, how the Hegelian dialectic shapes our perceptions of the world. Yeah, it isn't just the, the perception, it's the outcome. You see, they sit and plan, we want to take the world from here to there, how can we do it? Well, we need to get a problem, get the people to, to uh, go against the problem and have a solution which is your object in the first place. Now we're back with more after this break. I'm Alan Watt, and we're cutting through the Matrix, and we have Marcus from Philly here. Are you there, Marcus? Hey, Alan, can you hear me? Yes, I can, yeah. Great. Uh, I just want to say thank you for all your work, first of all. That's okay. Uh, my question has to do with everything that you talk about, about language, um, such as tonight is Halloween, and you, I think you said once that it was uh, the eye of the sun, right? Yeah. Um, I was it's, like, it's, like, it's like Halloween. Halloween is a, a joke, too. It was given by the Templars because people think of hollow, which is also uh, halo, which is, again, from the sun, but it's also hollow. In Old English, in was eyes, so you have the hollow eyes of the skull. It's a skull, you see. It's a little big joke on the, on the people. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, specifically, my question is about um, any researchers, people exposing this, um, inner language, any books that came before you uh, that you found to be good or um, someone inside uh, the establishment that, that wrote about this or any books about the history of this? You'll find language. John Dee uh, did write um, different articles, letters and so on, on language itself. And he was around at the time when he said, we are creating the language of the future, he and Bacon and others. Uh, the international language of the future for commerce, and it would be called English. Well, teams worked together to bring in what became uh, King James or Shakespearean English. And we know that from the writings of D, um, even in the one that's called uh, The Calling Down of Spirits or something, or His Contact with Spirits, it's actually a code book where they were using uh, the language and were putting coding within it for their own members of Rosicrucians. So, 
uh, they've, they've done it in the past. We also find that Brown's Code, Brownie, B-R-O-W-N-E-S, from Freemasonry also, he also had a code out for Freemasons, although that's, that's almost obsolete. Some lower masons still use it today. But uh, uh, there's coding out there. Generally, you can't get a hold of, of their books. Um, you might get Brown's Code, and you, you also get references or little uh, innuendos in the writings of Mackay, who was the one of the big historians for Freemasonry. And even Pike himself gives you a lot of double and triple and quadruple meanings of words. And we also know that um, Orwell, in his book 1984, has a discussion with the, the department of, uh, of uh, the dictionary. He says, it's a beautiful thing, the meaning of words. Then he goes into a little diatribe about how with linguistic minimalism you bring down the words within use until the people couldn't convey a thought. When that, when that minimal um, words in use, then they were of no danger to the elite because they could not convey the thoughts of even revolution. So there's a whole, there's many aspects of, the, of language itself, from coding to the way that sentences are strung together and to paragraphs and words themselves are used. The big, um, the ones who use a lot of this, the, the psycholinguistics you'll find is in marketing and in the big marketing companies that work with presidents and prime ministers and write the, the speeches and the scripts. They're very careful of the words they choose and how they string them together. It leaves pictures in your mind. It leaves impressions. You see that with Obama, who uses lots of emotional, emotive language and hypnotic um, statements in his speeches. But he never really actually says anything of concrete um, meaning. It's all very vague. That's, that's hypnotic uh, technique that's used with psycholinguistics. Well, that's, it. Uh, that's it for tonight. That's the music coming in. And from Hamish myself, under a, a well-sprayed sky in Ontario, Canada, and I mean really well-sprayed, it's good night, and your God or your gods go with you. <laughs>